Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Raised in the small town of Karkor, Kurt family has always been determined. Being born without the lower portion of his spine, he grew up in a community who never saw him different. In our conversation, Kurt shares how it wasn't until he was 12 years old that he fully realised that his path would be different. Kurt has achieved extraordinary feats from crewing a winning Sydney to Hobart yacht, crawling the Kokoda track and winning dozens of marathons around the world, many of them representing Australia. His career has been in wheelchair racing and Kurt shares the moment that he realised that his chair represented choice and that it could take him anywhere in the world. He started his career with two silver medals at the 2000 Sydney Paralympic Games before making his winning breakthrough at the 2004 Athens Paralympics with two gold medals. Kurt conquered the world, winning seven world championships and more than 30 marathons around the globe, including 10 marathons in 2007 and three straight New York marathon titles. In April 2018, just last year, Kurt finished his Australian representation as he started it on home soil with a win at the marathon in the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games. We talked about this race and what it took for him to combat his doubts and to reach out for help to mentally prepare for what would be his last race representing Australia. Since hanging up the green and gold, Kurt has been busy. You will hear his passion for advocating for people with disabilities and his drive to put this on the national agenda in our country. He has been recognised in multiple spheres, including being awarded the 2019 New South Wales Australian of the Year. And if you haven't watched his acceptance speech for this, make sure you Google it now because it is powerful. This conversation with Kurt was recorded sitting on a couch in a hotel a week before the announcement of the 2019 Australian of the Year. Kurt is humble when I asked him about the potential of being awarded this honour and shifts quickly to what he sees as his responsibility to influence politicians, corporations and education systems to give people with disabilities more choice than they are currently afforded. Enjoy listening to the thoughtfulness, the insights and the humour of this extraordinary Australian, Kurt Fernley. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have no time. Time's pretty limited <laughs> and I totally get that, so I really, really appreciate you taking, no, making the time. Not a problem. I, uh, I just want to make clear because you've had a, um, a recognition recently from, from Griffith University where you got your honorary doctorate. So what is the correct title? Are you Dr Fernley? Are you Lord Fernley? Uh, I, I, I take, I take sir, no, it's, <laughs> it was one of those... Um, uh, I did a lot of work with the Gold Coast leading into the games. Griffith Uni were uh, a major sponsor of the of the uh, Commonwealth Games, and specifically, even pretty sure they were the major sponsor of the uh, 5K run, the Allcomers run at the end of the marathon. So I I had interacted with Griffith along the way. I'm actually pro chancellor at CSU, so it was a little bit of a, um, a, a, a jump and fence there, uh, but. 
Yeah, they invited me to give their occasional address at graduation and they also offered me uh, an honorary doctorate, which means that when I'm on campus of Griffith, uh, I I think I could... um, there, there, you are referred to on paper as doctor, but I call myself fake doctor. Fake doctor. Yeah, okay. fake doctor <laughs> firmly. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a ring to that. So yeah. Line. yeah. So you've had an amazing uh, career in, in athletics and, and obviously in your chosen area around wheelchair racing. My kids are 11 and 9 at the moment and I kind of watch them. My son Patrick is just absolutely absorbing AFL and NBL wherever he can. My daughter just can't take her eyes off the uh, the netball super series when it comes on television. I'm really interested. Where did you first come across, I guess, wheelchair racing? Where did you see that early in your your career? So sport was a part of my family's DNA, really. We were uh, all of my brothers, cousins, uncles, they all played rugby league. Um, my, my, a lot of my cousins also, you know, represented up to state level in netball. Um, I saw my uncle coach Australia in the mid-80s for rugby league and I assumed that I was going to head in that direction. I just thought, okay, well, everyone else is playing footy, then I guess at some point I will. And then when it became pretty obvious that I was a little different to everyone else, and it's weird to say this, but it wasn't really until I went into high school that I realised that my path is is a different one compared to my my siblings. Why 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 is that weird to say? What was... That it took 12 years to realise you're in a wheelchair. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that the wheelchair is seen as something different and the, the paths that people take, that you, you won't, may not be able to follow them. And Is that because it was quite normalised up until then? Oh, I was just me. And my entire town, half of my town were family and the other half, we all just pretended we were my family and they... You know, there was just never a question. There was never a... It's, it, again, it's weird, sad. It just never really came up. Yeah. Yeah. And... And was there a moment where that realisation or a period where you kind of went, OK, actually, that pathway might be different? Yeah, when, when I went into Blaney High, it was a different experience because I went from a school of 16 kids to a school of 300 kids and 99% of them I'd never seen before. So all of a sudden you realise just purely by the way you're looked at, that it's that, that something's different here. Mm-hmm. And when you're going through the age of 13, 14, 15, um, you are looking at yourself and you are grabbing the differences that you see to everyone else around you. And mine were glaringly obvious at that point in time when the, when the friends were getting taller and running quicker and more, more, more agile or aggressive in sport, I was still kind of crawling around at the back of a rugby league scrum. And... I think that when I, when I was shown wheelchair racing then, and it, you know, I first saw it on on television. I saw the Day 10K uh, wheelchair race around the rocks, and, you know, I just, yeah. After that, it felt like just this roadmap came down in front of me, and people kept it kind of directed me in the right way, thankfully. And uh, teachers introduced me to my coach, who I I kept as we stayed together as a team from 1994 through to, through to last year. Um, so you've had the same coach? Same coach. Wow, that's phenomenal. Yeah, he, he, an able-bodied guy, never pushed a wheelchair before in his life. He's, 
He uh, grew up in Orange, so he's a Central West boy as well. And yeah, he was driving back home one day and my school teacher had got on to him through Wheelchair Sports New South Wales and he was driving home that weekend and he decided to drop in in Karkor and teach me how to push a chair. And then he started writing me programs and yeah, again, uh, we spent like 25 years kind of working together to see what we could do. That's a strong relationship. That's a really strong connection. Yeah, I always knew that if if Dawsey, um, if he retired, I would have retired. Um, and, you know, now he, he's got more athletes than what he ever has. So he's still contributing and building the sport. And, yeah, one of those relationships where you're able to communicate, but he knew that I was going to bury myself for him and, and I... I knew that he was the best in the world at what he did. So that that kind of dynamic works. Yeah, that mutuality, yeah. The mutual kind of coming together and yeah. the, the Respect drive. and also common goal. Yeah. So did a lot of that drive come from yourself when you saw that at the time? Like obviously that connection through a coach and, and having a bit of a pathway about what to do, but it still requires a, a mindset and a mission to go... Yeah, I guess that pathway from seeing it on television to actually going, this is going to be something I pursue professionally. Yeah, that it feels like right now when you're 25 years down the track, it feels like you've it was a pretty straight line, but uh, when you're in the thick of it, it was a long way from a straight line. Um, when I first saw it, sure, I wanted to be it, but it's like a kid looking at an astronaut saying, Geez, I'd like to do that. You know, it was so foreign to me that it could have been a different world apart from crawling around paddocks chasing rabbits to going 80k an hour down a hill in a, you know, in one of these machines that looked well. They probably were as expensive as my mum and dad's car. Yeah. You know, that 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 was a a big leap, but you know, the leaps happened. You know, the the right people at the right time sent me in directions, assisted me in the in the play and. And I think I made a, a fairly solid contract with myself that I was going to give it a, I was going to give it a crack. I was going to, you know, when I found out, especially when I had a little bit of talent in it, I wasn't going to leave anything out there. Can you remember the start line of the very first race that, uh, that, that came together for you? I remember the weekend that was my very first race because I did a, a meet. I did a 100, 200, 400, 800, and I just... I remember finishing the 800 saying that that is the longest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Who would race at 800? Um, and Two case later. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. But I hated, I hated the eight. Um, and I got my, my butt, you know, I got t- towed up. Yeah. Um, and, but, but what I, what's memorable is that I was in this place where there were 300 kids with disabilities and, 300 kids in chairs and you just, you know, I, I, am, I will fight till I'm buried somewhere for integration. I'll, you know, that's one thing that I believe is essential for us to be a healthy Australian country, nation, um, and a just nation is making sure that every kid who can be integrated into education facilities, employment, they have to be for the, for the, for the betterment of the country and the betterment for the individual and and also for the other employees to see and have a real accurate experience with what life is. Um, but 
there is also a lot of strength in, in sitting down with kids who look like you, mm. who have to deal with the same issues that you do. Mm. There's something comforting there and something that recharges the batteries a little. Yeah, I think it's powerful human beings to actually be looking people in the eye and go, me too, mm. or I'd face that. Or yeah, exactly. This is the pathway. And there were a lot of frustrations that, that people just, unless you feel it and you're in it, you just, you don't know it. Yeah. And when you sit down with 200 people and you all just get it, it's, it is. Is there freedom in that? Is yeah. Letting go? Yeah, there was. It was like a different world that was able to be created for me. And, you know, when you're, when you're in year seven and eight and nine and you're trying to hide, um, sometimes you're trying to hide by talking, or you know what I mean? Like you, yes. you're trying to just nobody notice certain parts of yourself. Um, and then you go into a group and it's just like, no, that's, that's the awesome part of ourselves, you know? And, yeah. and it was, yeah, it was, and also just even referring to ourselves and referring to disability with such an abrupt and casual way, it was really different to what I experienced before outside of that world as well. When you sit down and everyone's like, say your first trip to cripple camp. <laughs> and it's just, Welcome. Yeah, yeah. And I looked at my wheelchair and they said, get rid of those handlebars and get rid of those brakes, the old fellas of yeah, the, right. the guys. They used to um, be pretty, well, no, they were, they were fiercely independent and they wanted to make sure that the next generation understood that that was what, that was who we were. So, yeah, the first camp, they took a hacksaw to my brakes and took them off the chairs and... They said, you don't be pushed by anyone and took the handles off the back of my chair and they said that wheelchair is yours and you choose which way it goes. How much did some of that conversation inform, I guess, the tenacity of your personality? Well, that was, that's why I love that environment. I really do. Like, it's just, you know, like it helped me and then it helped me become who I needed to be. Mm. And you look at the you look at your wheelchair differently. Like you don't put brakes on it because if you want it to stop, you stop it. Don't make a brake stop it. You've got to be able to feel as if this is, this is a part of you. And they were very, very, you know, push back about this, this sense of, um, oh, how do you get it sheltered or, or cotton wooled? It was more about, you're in a chair, there's nothing to be cautious about being a chair. It's awesome. And uh, they were just, oh, life, life may be a bit more robust to you and you have to be robust right back. Yeah, and do it on your terms. Do it on your terms. And, you know, that day I would, that they would sit there and take those handles off my chair straight away. It was a bit, of course, why the hell... Why the hell wouldn't we take the handlebars off my chair? <laughs> you, know? yeah. you don't, you know. But it's the, not something you would think of. No, not at not. Yeah, not until it's kind of said that, you know, kids aren't carried around. Kids aren't carried around who can walk until they're sixteen. They're just not. You put them on the ground till they figure out how to walk, and then they follow you along. Yeah. And a wheelchair can't. As someone who's experiencing life in a wheelchair, you, you know that we're not a submissive part of life um, there are those that require assistance and they're the, you know life with disability is extremely varied but I think that 
we should do what we can to make sure that people can live a long, healthy, independent and, and fierce life. And um, for me, that was about recognising that I chose the direction. Um, I chose, you know, I, I chose to see my wheelchair as something that's liberating and powerful and, um, and a part of me. And that, it sounds like that's the key behind it is that, that sense of choice, that you just don't have to take it as it is or you, you can actually stop and think and choose whatever the circumstance, whether it's a wheelchair, whether it's not, whether it's something you feel like is holding you back. Well, it's, it's, it's like you never see that, like it was never see that wheelchair as a bird. Yep. You know, so like, then is there a relationship, like you sort of said, that's an extension of you, the part of you, is there a, a unique relationship there? Yeah, like yeah. Yeah, some of the most anxious points of your life are when you, the wheelchair's taken away from you. Yeah. Um, because it represents, you know, I can crawl if I've got to, you know, like if someone t- took my wheelchair tomorrow, I'd figure out a way. Um, but it's, you know, for for hundreds of years, if I was born previous to, you know, you're just sitting in the dirt, you know. And I, even right now, two thirds of the world who require a wheelchair will never even see a wheelchair. So there's a lot of people around this world sitting in dirt, you know. Um, when I'm, you know, that, that when you're in this thing, you just realise how far it can take you compared to the alternative. Yeah. So when it's taken away, you just, you're anxious. Yeah. Like yeah. jumping on planes, there were, there are still circumstances where wheelchairs are taken from you at check-in and then you are put in a seat and made that, you know, submissive, the choices out of your hands. And every time I go to the airport, you wonder whether or not, you know, that's going to be the case again. And it's, you know, I'm a fairly independent, a fairly solid sense of who I, who I am. and. Uh, I still get the most anxious parts of my life was every single time I push into an airport. Wow, yeah. And you do that regularly. So I do, like You yeah. do that a lot. Yeah, and it's yeah. not into any airport, it's an airport in Australia. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you just wonder when's it going to, you know, you know you're not going to be able to have that conversation or it's rare to have that conversation where someone will sit down and say, how can we assist you? You just know it's going to get to the point where you go in there and they said, this is how it is. And, you know, since I was, since I was 10, I was kind of built not to accept that. Yeah, yeah. And so, it, yeah. I can see that that's something that it's, it's a conversation that we continue to need to have frustration on the part of other people having to face the same thing. Well, we keep talking about wheelchairs as if we're wheelchair bound or um, confined to a wheelchair. Whenever I see that in a paper, it just does my head in, you know, like I'm not confined to nothing. That thing that you see to be a, to be a, a barrier, that you see to be a, um, a, a prison, it's, it's not, it's completely the opposite. It's, it's something that gives life to people. And, you know, like, yeah, people put their own personal fears on the life that's in front of them and it's, it's not fair on the person. It's not fair on themselves. It's not fair on the person in the wheelchair. But we're progressing. We're getting there and it's about trying to slowly but surely kind of push it towards better, you know? 
stopping, pausing and, and yeah. having those conversations. Your racing wheelchair has obviously been a big part of your career um, and uh, has taken you to sites and, and places all around the world. Um, we're sitting here having this conversation on the Gold Coast and I know the Gold Coast has represented a lot throughout your career. In April last year, we obviously had the Commonwealth Games um, here on the Gold Coast and and uh, I had the great ad- advantage and, and opportunity to see you see you race both uh, both in the in the athletics arena but also for the marathon and that came to be your your last race that you donned the the green and gold for Australia what was that uh, that marathon like for you it was awesome like the whole two weeks uh, flying out of Newcastle, you leave Newcastle, and Newcastle always kind of remains the same, no matter what's going on. You know, you still kind of put it up the street. You're seeing the same people, you know, the same shopkeepers. It's it just, it's it's always just kind of family place. You know, it's home. And then I flew into the Gold Coast, and it was just crazy. It was off the hook. Like volunteers would cry when I came around the corner, and. People kept just wishing me, wishing me well and hugs and it was really an intense couple of weeks and the marathon was my focus. I got a silver in the 1500 and I remember just telling myself just to let everything happen around you but just keep the head, keep the head in the marathon and a lot of people have bought in to what I'm doing, a lot of people have got me to the start line, a lot of people are waiting there. Hundred of my family were up in the Gold Coast and I just thought, just go out there and bury yourself, forget everyone else. And yeah, for an hour and 32 minutes, I had an average heart rate at 194. I crested at 211. 194 and 211, wow. Yeah, so an hour and 32 minutes at 194 and then with 500 metres to go, you're taking on the a bridge, it's probably the biggest hill that had on the course. And you're telling yourself that the people are on your wheel, you've got to break them. You know, they were a K or so back, but you're still trying to make sure that you're you're on the rivet. And it's all about pushing it as close to the knife edge, but not going over. So and physically, how does that feel to be at that that level? Like what are you experiencing from a heart and lung perspective, what are you? I'll never be able to do that again, ever. Um, that was a perfect mid. I was strong, I was fit, I was aggressive, and you had this greater, this sense of greater purpose. And when you can grab that, you can just put your body into some strange positions, some strange kind of states. And uh, it's, like you, it's like you feel everything around you shaking it's all moving and, and, and you've just got to try and grab hold of it and pull it in and, and hold it kind of tight and, and focus on that. And usually for me, it's, uh, you know, you're either saying something again and again and again, and that's the thing that just pulls the, the everything else in tighter and, um, yeah, and, and just making sure that when you're there, you don't lose the focus because you're on the knife edge, you lose the focus, you crash, you fall down, you don't get back up. You're done. Um, so what helps you stay on that, that knife's focus? What helps you stay on There's a few things. I'd either, I either, you know, there's a few different triggers that I love. Um, I either ask myself a question, who am I? And when I ask that, 
it's just this, you know, you, you feel like you do get a physical response from it. And, you know, I know who I am. I'm strong, I'm resilient, and I'll never give up, ever. Or you um, try and visualise the finish line and you try and already see you there. There is no alternative. It's already happened. You're going to get there. Or you just even just sometimes make a sound and it just be a... <laughs> And that repetition is enough for you to hold yourself in. Um, but, you know, it depends on how hard you've been, depends on how hard the race is. You'll either start at one, that's not working, go to another, that's working, great. Keep that for the next period of time. Um, and usually, though, you can only do that when you're alone because when you're with a pack, you're always looking around and you're always making sure that no one's attacking, that you're covering the right... Um, the right wheels, but when you're on your own, those things, they really help. Positive affirmation, visualisation, you know, for me, it's everything it's cracked up to be. And what went through your mind when you crossed that line? Relief. Relief. Uh, I'd worked with the Com Games for seven years. I'd worked with the the bid, the pre-bid. I had taken the uh, Queen's Batten into Buckingham Palace to, you know, start that on its journey. I'd, I'd worked on the Sport and Tech Advisory Board. I was a, I was a, uh, on the Athlete uh, uh, Representative Committee. I was, I was on the, uh, I was a Gold Coast 2018 ambassador. I, you know, I, I felt like I, I'd, I'd been a part of laying a lot of bricks in that house, and then to go back as you know, as, as an athlete to be, you know, the captain of the Australian athletics team. Um, at the end, there was so much invested in it that it was relief. It was more than the hour and a half. <laughs> you know, That's a long journey to that finish line. And it's the first time I actually, um, in the months leading up to it, I did seek outside help. So I, I had a sports psych, Fiona, who was able to, um, just strip everything away when it was getting overwhelming. Um, and it just made it all so, I made it, we made it really simple for ourselves that focus on the race, what would I be happy with, not result-wise, what would I be happy with finish line-wise, and go from there. And it was, as long as I crossed that finish line with no hesitation that I could have went any harder that I'm good. And the result will take care of itself after that. And that helped me through there. And it worked. And as soon as it stopped, it was just a deep breath, find my family, thank people. And what I thought then was disappear into the background. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I really did. I was oh, like, I love that. <laughs> I thought that... It's thanks done. for coming. <laughs> it's, yeah, I thought, thanks, everyone. You've been awesome. Yeah. Um, time for me to go home now. <laughs> and then, then Mona's... That hasn't been the case. That has it? not been the case. <laughs> no. if, you know, like, that's been the opposite of the case. And five minutes after I crossed the finish line, uh, Steve Monaghetti asked me whether or not I would carry the flag into the closing ceremony. Um, the ceremony wasn't covered on television, which then turned into some, um, a crazy 24 hours uh, on, 
on social. It's one of those ones where you... What was going through your mind at that time? Because it was, it was crazy. It was awful, like, wasn't we it? Were, we were there at the closing ceremony, so I saw you do it. Okay, <laughs> I great. You do the yeah. So I know, even though it wasn't televised. My mum and dad happening. didn't see me do it, and they were there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I not No, we were at the end where you started, yeah. but um, yeah. that was a whirlwind. So what was, was going through your mind in that experience? Um... What was that experience like? It was weird. It was weird. Yeah. You know what? As soon as it was done, I was just like, you know what? You can't let anything affect the good that came out of those games because we're too quick to turn away from that. We're too yeah. quick to turn away from 95% of the good to look at that, you know, and I'm guilty of it. We're all, I think, we're all drawn to that negative story. We're alert to it, right? It is. You it's know, like we're looking for it, you know. Yeah. And honestly, the first thing that just went through my head was that, Whatever happened there, um, I can't let it affect the good that happened over the last decade. So you just got out and kind of just woke up the next morning and it was thousands upon thousands of messages, which is incredibly well-meaning and it's bloody awesome because people bought into what we were doing on the Gold Coast. They bought into seeing disability held side by side, their able-bodied peers, people loved it. And they, the public, like, Gold Coast wanted to see that and celebrate that. They wanted that final lap, you know? Um, And I understand that, but we can't, why why do we, why do we look at 200 people in St Kilda being assholes and we've got 24 million people having a crack at making this thing work? It's, you know, we're we're too quick to jump at. Yeah. And as you say, it's almost coming back to the moments and, and, for me, I got to see that game through the eyes of my kids and it was all, um, it was just part and parcel mm. and their celebration of the, the Paralympic athletes in all fields um, as well as the, the able bodies. It was, it was no, no different. There was no, nothing there and, and uh, that was really powerful. Um, and, yeah, even in all of that, there, and I can imagine there probably was a moment even being on that on that floor with the athletes from the Commonwealth Games with that flag in your hand. That's that's a moment that can't be taken away from you. For sure, for sure. And although some of the moments are uh, Isis Holt win the one hundred, seventeen-year-old mm-hmm. uh, girl with cerebral palsy, um, a legend in the Paralympic movement get kind of shown in a different stage. Um, seeing Madison de Rosario win the 1500 metres in the marathon and, and the coverage and the response that they got really launched her onto some bigger and, and better things. Um, so, you know, there was there was so many highlights that you just, yeah, you've got to make sure that you put it all into perspective. And, and the Gold Coast nailed those games. It was, the weird thing about it is that people with disabilities have been in the Commonwealth movement since 1990. We've been there competing. We've been there originally as demonstration, but full medal status since I think 2002. But we've never really sold it right. Hmm. This time, also I don't think community were really ready to see it the way that they saw it in the Gold Coast. And sometimes when we're doing inclusion right, sometimes the highest stage will get given to somebody who is the recipient of that inclusion. And so sometimes the highest stage goes to the people that have just been invited into the room. Mm. And 
I think in Gold Coast we saw that. And, yeah, uh, it, was, it was a hell of a thing. Mm. Is there a sense of pride? Pride that it worked. You know, pride that the entire organising committee owned it, mm. bought into it. Pride that Channel 7, they, they, they spoke about it like they were family with, you know, the, the group. And, you know, pride that in that team, I don't see, I don't see wheelchairs or amputees or able-bodied people. We won't see it anymore. You know, I think that the public will demand that there is equality mm. in those events. And, you know, that I feel proud that we've been able to create something long-lasting. Mm. And like I said, through the, through the eyes of my kids, I certainly know that's, that's what they need to see. Mm. Yeah, well, sure. my kids are able-bodied kids <laughs> and, the, and they've got to see a realistic version of what life is and it's not all about, you know, you know it's not all about the fittest, most um, symmetrical person on Instagram. Mm. You know, like it's, life is about variation of experience and an appreciation of what you have, an appreciation of the people around you for who they are. And that's, that's real. And that's what the Commonwealth Movement has now. Mm. A celebration of the effort it takes just to get, to get there. Yeah, a celebration of excellence, no matter what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. So you hinted at that you thought that you might just slip away <laughs> and that that hasn't at all been the case since the Commonwealth Games and even towards the end of last year, if I can think about, I'm going to try and remember what you have been awarded. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you received the, the Don Award and you were the first, first person in the kind of Paralympic community to receive that towards the end of last year. And your speech from that, um, I was only looking at last night, was rated in one of the top 25 speeches of 2018, just above um, Barack Obama. Just above, <laughs> yeah. Um, you also received the, the GQ Sportsman um, of the Year. You got your honorary Actually, I've doctorate. Got, I've got a sporting, for GQ, it was Sporting Icon of the Year. Oh, so there I'm you not go. Sure. Sporting <laughs> Icon. I'm not sure what that means. But. Take that. Um, your honorary doctorate, you've been appointed to the board of the um, sports, the old sports commission, Sport, Sports Australia. Um, is What does it take to have to get out of doing the washing at home? <laughs> like, is this part of the, how many awards is it going to take for you? <laughs> See, no, nothing, you know. The, the thing about the more and more I meet people who find themselves on bigger stage, the more normal they are. And, you know, they still go home and do, well, I don't go home and do the washing. Who am I kidding? Look, awards and recognition are really strange experiences. Yeah. Uh, well, you never really ask to be there. You never, you never have an idea that it's even there. And then when it comes, you try and just take it and be grateful and, and, do stuff to deserve it going forwards. And it was, it, last year was weird because I was done in April. And then I, had, I did a, a lot of work afterwards. Um, but then it came to October, November, and you keep getting these phone calls. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it was a real, a real strange way to finish and a real privileged way to finish because not too many people get you know, not too many people get one night out to have a group of people celebrate 25 years. Mm. Um, and I recognise that 
I was given a lot of um, a lot of pretty privileged positions last year, and and yeah, it was a long way from going home and saying goodnight. And mm. you know, it's also getting to the point where I've got to become comfortable now with it not disappearing. And the role that I thought I would have is going to be very different to the role that I see coming in the future. Yeah. So there's constant change even in that around identity, conversations, platform. It's, well, it's, it's been lucky that I've been able to create half a dozen things alongside wheelchair racing. And, you know, if I speak to any athlete, it's too late to start progression once you're done sport. Mm-hmm. It's too late. Um, too hard on yourself. You know, like the, you, you, you've seen, if you've seen yourself as just this one strand of life and then that's gone without other streams of purpose around you, it's just too hard for you. Um, so for, for the 25 years I studied to become a teacher, I worked a little bit with NGOs at home and abroad around disability and education. I'd started a program or been a part of a program and and consulting with uh, the Crown Resorts where we got 366 people with disabilities employed uh, with a retention rate, I think about 78% over the four year period, which is a better retention rate than Mm. most other able-bodied um, or uh, non-disabled communities. So I had all of these things kicking along in the background was, that I thought was the sole place that I was headed. And, um, and it allowed me to step back from wheelchair racing but continue to be the person that I was. What has helped you with that? Because I think it's actually a really important thing um, not just in the sporting arena, but I often talk to people around just that reinvention or evolution of identity. Who am I? And whether that's in someone shifting out of a corporate world into their own business or um, from a, you know, but often in sport it is a long time and you have to be solely focused on a particular area. You have to embody that identity to have the edge against your competitors. Um, and so the thought or the idea about shifting that or, or even, not even shifting the identity, but expanding it to becoming more than just what that is. What has helped you? And I think it's really important. I think it's really powerful that people think about that before the day comes. Um, but what has helped you to, I guess, encourage you to explore those other pathways before the professional career rounded out? Seeing healthy relationships outside of sport, having healthy relationships with, you know, my mates through uni, um, my wife Sheridan, managing, you know, family and work and travel. Uh, athletes, athletes uh, uh, create bubbles, really, and they sink a hundred percent of themselves into that. But um, and and often when they don't have relationships outside of that bubble, um, you lose a bit of focus. You lose a bit of real world. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, I've had a, a lot of really healthy functioning relationships. All of my mates that I went through uni with, um, I saw them branch out into two or three different fields of work, starting their own businesses and creating careers that you just know that's what people do. And I think that I've 
you see a lot of athletes um, unsuccessfully transition. Uh, they, uh, I think that I just knew I wasn't, I didn't want to do that, you know, because when you don't plan, you know, also the family pay for that as well. Yeah. If I fall off a cliff, they're with me. Yes. And yeah. I wasn't willing to let that happen. So there's another purpose, there a was. bigger purpose yeah. around why, why yeah. that's really important. That's exactly. Yeah. yeah. And also my coach just demanded that we had, he wanted our friends to be outside of sport. Yep. So he said that when you're in training, we're training hard, but, you know, you, you, you don't live this every day of the week. You be more than the athlete. So he's demanded it for me and, and I think every other athlete that he's coached to look outside of and create networks outside of and relationships outside of that. Part of the accolades, one of the accolades that you have been recognised for is the New South Wales Australian of the Year. Um, we're a week out from the announcement of, of Australian of the Year 2019 and you're alongside some incredible incredible um, human beings that are, have made an impact and continue to make an impact across, across this country. Um, I'm sure it's probably played on your mind, but if, if that honour was bestowed on you um, for 2019, what, what are some of the conversations or what do you think this year will stand for? What will you stand for in that role? Yeah, I'm, I'm really... Yeah. I always feel cautious about um, putting anything too concrete out there because by all likelihood, I won't be Australian of the year and I don't want to have my roadmap sit alongside theirs, you know? And um, what I, I wouldn't do much more I wouldn't change what I'm doing now. It would just escalate. Mm. Yeah, and the, the values and the things that I truly believe in are that, are that we need more people with disabilities employed in real life settings. No more sheltered workshops. Uh, we, we can't have people saying that we're gonna employ more people with disabilities, but then put 200 people with disabilities in their own shed, not interacting with the wider community we need, just like I needed relationships of, with people with variations of life, we need everyone within our community to have those relationships with people with disabilities and the community suffering if we're pushing people with disabilities to the side. Um, I will push us and speak about inclusion, about how important it is that we get people with disabilities at all levels of education. We get more graduates out of universities. We get more opportunities given through, through um, uh, big and small business and try and get the companies like what Crown have done. They committed to employing people with disabilities because one person brought it up. 366 lives have changed. 366 people's families have changed. I'll be doing whatever I could to make sure that we have 20 Big businesses saying that they want to do the same thing, that small businesses maybe just look at what facilities they're offering people with disabilities. Um, I will, uh, look, I, it's, there, there, is, there is so much that I would, I would run with. Um, but again, 
that could be someone else's life as well. So yeah. you don't want to get too caught up. Um, in that possibility. In that know, possibility. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Regardless of the outcome, um, right here, right now, what does it mean to you, I guess, to be to be sitting alongside yeah. some of those that have been on it? Terrifies you. Terrifies you. Because? Um, uh, just... Because everything's just normal. You know, what? like everything yeah. is just... What do you mean I'm New South Wales, Australia? <laughs> <laughs> Everything is, day-to-day life is just wake up, progress through it and then, and then, you know, have another crack the next day. And um, I don't know, it just feels so strange to be put in stages where, you know, the it's just such a limited experience of life. So, it, 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 yeah, it's a little... It's a little terrifying, but also when you when you do get given them, you 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 rise and you try and justify it and you work your ass off for that moment. Yeah, yeah. You in, through our conversation and I guess you know spending this time with you, one of the things that really strikes me is um, you have a real deep compassion for for others, um, and whether that's something that's conscious or it's just come through. Uh, the work that you do and the things that you're interested in, where does that come from? I think I was saying generosity and kindness and compassion every day of my life, still am. People are extremely generous with me. And, you know, Newcastle, again, they show kindness every time you step out of your door. Um, When you grow up, and again, I feel guilty, the experience that I had growing up, I feel guilty that because I had a disability, I was a rallying point really for my town. And, you know, they spoke to me about how strong I am and, and, and you know, if there's a lot of kids in these countries that, that don't get given the opportunities that I, that I was given, whether they're disabled or non-disabled. Um, but it just so happens at that point in time, a town showed me generosity and kindness, a town they bought me my first wheelchair. They paid for a ticket for me to travel. They made sure that understood that they had my back. And I want my kids to grow up in that same setting. So, and I want that to be the Australia that more people get to experience. So whenever I'm given the opportunity, I speak about that and I, I try and get people to I try and get people to buy into believing in each other. Because um, I think for a lot of people it's an intent or a desire, but it's it, it's tough. It's tough to to do that when we get caught in our own busyness, our own crap, our own world, to actually lift your head up and yeah. see others. But shit, it's good. Yeah, <laughs> it's better. <laughs> it's right? better. It's better than the yeah, how miserable is it some days where you just... You're bombarded by shit. Yeah. Um, but, gee, it's nice when you actually put your head up and you, you know, you drop by the neighbour and have a glass of red wine with them, you know. Like, it's just better. Mm. And when you see the next-door neighbour or the kid down the street, you know, find their way to to a basketball camp in the US because they'll run a chook raffles, you know. Like, it's good. And, you know, I just, I just think sometimes... Yeah, it's, it's sometimes you've just got to make that effort because the easiest thing in the world is 
not to. <laughs> it's yeah. just easy. Yeah. Sometimes you've got to force yourself to look up and... Have there been times where you've kind of been caught in that or stuck in that kind of headspace and, and I guess what's helped pull you out of that? Uh, where, yeah, there are heaps of times where you... Um, you know, in the lead-up to the Common Games, I think it was around Christmas, I just thought, oh, maybe it was January, I didn't want to push my wheelchair again. You know, because I just had all of these doubts and concerns and fears and um, and then you isolate yourself even more when you get them and the only way out is to actually share it and speak about it. And, you know, sometimes it is looking after someone around you is the thing that helps you get through the thing that you're going through. Um, but, yeah, someone that, 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 as far as racing-wise, that period from Christmas through to about February before I actually recognised where I was, that were the toughest that I've had. Mm. And that recognition, was that something that you saw or is that something that someone else...? No, I saw. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I just... I saw that I, that, that I wasn't enjoying what I was doing and that, that hasn't happened in 20 years and, you know, I just needed to make a phone call and be reminded of a few things and that was enough to keep me going. Asking for help can be one of the hardest things that we can do. Um, it's, it's a bit un-Australian. Uh, we're there to help others. We're Funny, really happy yeah. to do it, but, but it can be really tough. What's been your experience? Well, some of the things that I do think are... Our real Australian values is that we do try and look, we should try and look after each other because if from day dot, um, well, from the time farming was taking place, the um, people were living in a pretty harsh environment. So, um, and that ability to be able to look after people, I think, I hope, I believe, is ingrained in us, but yet we still struggle to reach out. Um, so I felt like I was uh, bombarded with this okay, this this idea that it's okay to seek help and it's okay to speak about the things that you're going through, you know. And I always talk about crawling through paddocks and climbing over barbed fences, but what I don't recognise as much is that on the other side of every fence there was a shoulder waiting for me and that shoulder would carry me to the next river. And when you... When you're able to do that and work together and rely on each other, you can you can just make a lot of things lighter on yourself and you can go so much further and there's no weakness in it, just strength. Um, it just sometimes takes a while for us to realise that. Hmm. You took some time back in, I think it was 2009, um, to, to actually do the Kokoda track and I understand that was that was part of kind of the recognition of, of um, putting an awareness to to men's health. Uh, Kokoda is a tough thing to do. Um, my husband actually did the the trek last year in September. Did a lot of training for it, and he he did alongside some mates. But found that track incredibly um, not only physically tough but very emotional mm -hmm. uh, experience as well. Um, there's obviously no wheelchair ramps on the Kokoda track. <laughs> How did you find that that track? And then what were some of the insights you personally got out of, of doing that, having that experience? Yeah, it was the longest, hardest family vacation that I've that I've ever had. I crossed it with my brothers and cousins and a few friends. Um, the 
biggest insight I took away would have been the PNG people, the kindness that they showed every person on that track, and the, that they put other people before themselves, that they have a real communal uh, idea of life, and it's pretty harsh reality as well uh, that, they, that they're going through. And it's funny, like, you find yourself in a lot of settings, whether it's in developing countries, where you think you're going over there to help and, you know, you think you're going to be giving and giving and giving, but you receive so much more. Uh, some of the harshest places that I've been to, you know what the people are? They're bloody happy. <laughs> happy. <laughs> Smile and laughing. Um, so hanging around with the local boys up there, they were just strong and kind and gentle. They looked after each other. They looked after us. Um, they have this ability to make you feel like you're their family after 20 seconds. Like that culture, it's, you know, again, it's got some pretty heavy issues and, but gee, it's got some things that we could take on. Um, and then just putting your fingers in the dirt where people died to allow our life to be what it is. You know, we don't have too many, you know, outside of uh, sacred lands for, for the indigenous people. We don't have a trek here where we see um, an, a battle fought so that we could live. And it was a battle fought by farmers and builders and, and just, you know, your average punter and 15, 16, 17 year old kids who lied to go there. Um, when you put your fingers in that dirt, there's something special about it. And by no means should we fool ourselves and say it's our dirt, it's the PNG's people dirt. And they were there alongside our guys doing what they could and they're still there battling and struggling. And um, yeah, it's a pretty heavy place to be. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that, yeah, because it's not just for a day or for half a day, it's no, day it's in, day out. Nine hours a day, <laughs> 11 days straight. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the reality was just, it was crawl as far as I could. And then and sometimes the boys would just throw me on their shoulder and they'd run and you'd have to be tapping them to say, let me down, let me down, let me down. <laughs> and um, the hardest part was probably every time we pulled up at, um, every time we pulled up into camp at about three o'clock every afternoon, you know, you'd lie down and Mac would usually, one of my porters, he would usually strip me off. Um, some days he'd have a bucket of water and he'd wash me and they'd remove all the band-aids and bandages and I'd put dead oil on everything and then re-bandage, re-band-aid. And then you'd sit there and you'd be in pain and you'd think, okay, I've got to do it tomorrow again. It's got to happen another 10 days, nine, eight, seven. And yeah, for me, they were the hardest days, the hardest hours of every day was the, the doubt once I stopped crawling. Yeah. And then you'd get back up the next morning. Well, once you yeah, go to yeah. sleep, you know, once that process starts again, you just, you start again. You <laughs> know, once I take a step, you can take another step. Um, yeah, but, you know, physically, you just keep dragging. Um, but, yeah, once, you, once you're done, you're not only handling the pain, um, 
you're handling the doubt. Mm. And and that's confronting, isn't it? Like that's, that's yeah, you're of... sitting in a jungle. Yeah, yeah. Sitting in a jungle nine days away from, you know, your next bath or shower. Some things were really funny. Some nights Mac would just sit down next to me and he'd just whisper to me and he'd just go, you tell me when you're done. <laughs> it was mostly once we passed the highest point of the track and I, I remember him sitting down and asking him, he was happy. And I said, hey, what's happening, mate? And he goes, I... I'm happy now because you tell me you're done, I'll have you in Moresby tonight. Oh. <laughs> you know, and he was like, we got past that point where he knew he could throw me on his shoulder and he'd run me into Moresby in a day. Mm. And, you know, like, so then all of a sudden that helps getting through those fears that, one, it was a laugh and a laugh on that track is just like gold. Um, you know, having to have a chuckle and... and um, the boys would also sing next to me and they would sing the whole time you're moving, which is just like it sends you next level. Um, but, yeah, all of those little tiny things, those little tiny conversations that were enough to kind of just kick you along. The power of doing it with others. Yeah. Others right there with you. It was. And yeah. just sharing their experience and seeing his relief was was pretty... <laughs> You know, there was a moment where he, when he first said it to me, it just was like, ah, oh, you know, like, it was good. <laughs> That's possible. That's possible. Even now, what are some of the things that help you to, um, uh, I guess, manage your own energy, your own kind of headspace? Do you have kind of non-negotiables for yourself around whether it's even... Um, exercise or movement or what are the things that I try and move for an hour and a half every day. Uh, that keeps my head functioning. I did it since I was 14, so I have to do it now. I'll have to do that forever for my own my own health. Um, I always need a goal. I need to know where I'm headed um, so that, you know, the goals are shifting a lot. Um, but I always need to make sure that there is there is a long-term purpose to what's going on. Um, it just makes me feel, I don't know, it just kind of makes me feel purple, like calm almost. Yeah, so whether that's a teaching goal or it's to work more in the developing world or whether it's to try and get 400 or 1,000, people with disabilities, real world jobs, then, you know, that's enough for me to kind of, um, I don't know, kind of progress. But I'll have to have, I'll have to have goals, I'll have to have purpose and I'll have to move forever. Yeah, yeah. You're launching your own own podcast and, and we were touching before on some of the, the conversations that you're kind of keen to jump into. Um, what's the, the intent behind the podcast and, and what are some of the conversations that you're hoping that people will be able to tune into from that platform? So the intent's to talk about what it is to be an Australian. Yeah. So because I've been kind of... I get a lot of feedback from people in the street to be, what a great Australian, you know, this is what Australia's about. And I want to find out what other people's idea of what Australia is. So I've been chatting to, I think I'm half a dozen uh, people in and, and 
you know, to start with, it's speaking to people in my world, people that I've, I've been able to work with, people from sport or politics or, or from the disability sector. Um, and yeah, just sit down and have a yarn. And it's funny, the experience of what it is to be an Australian is also, it just brings back memories of me figuring out where I was headed. And I love it, you know, it's been really, really fun. And yeah, I think hopefully we should be ready to uh, jump online sometime after Australia Day, but yeah, we'll, we'll eventually also just go into sitting in a cafe and having an iron for a chef for an hour, jumping in a taxi or a paying an Uber driver to drive me for 45 minutes or... Uh, what are some of the things you heard so far about what does it mean to be Australian? Um, Humour, resilience. Um, a lot of them go to this egalitarian sense of who we are from because it's a, um, because it's a, you know, we, 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 we do see that resilience that I spoke about earlier about that isolation. People do speak about that being as part of the DNA of the country. Um, there's a big, um, a common theme has went through that we're just not doing, we're not recognised we're not recognising Indigenous voices enough. That's been, you know, um, pretty much every person has spoken about that. Um, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's been varied, but also you do have those common themes. I'm surprised how much humour comes into it. The, the, the idea that we, we don't, we don't take things too seriously because I actually thought that people would go the other way and think that, oh, we used to not take things too seriously, but, uh, you know, we are getting a bit carried away, but it hasn't went there yet. So it's been, yeah, it's been good. Humour's a big connection point as well, I think, for a lot of Australians. It's the way that we connect. It's the way that we recognise the way that we're part of each other. And we do everything, every experience that I've had, whether it is in the political, you know, dealing with politics or policy, whether it's dealing with um, on sport, uh, in sport or in business, you know, we do still have a laugh. You know, you do see the Aussies in the sporting fields are the ones that are trying to crack a joke midway through the, midway through the comp. Um, and I love that. And I hope that is something that continues to come out in the podcast. I'd love to come full, full circle in, in this conversation. So the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. And I'm really interested in what does that mean for, for a whole range of different people? Similar to where you're talking about what's it mean to be Australian, but what does it take or what does that terminology mean when you hear that? Uh, what, what does it mean to be a standout life? If I offer that term up to you, what comes to mind? Grateful. I... Uh, if you're grateful for every day you got, you make use of it. So if I think of a standout life, I think of somebody who is grateful to take a breath every single morning and, and have a crack at something, believe in something, chase something. Um, and whether that be in academics, in building, in sport, um, that's, that's, for me, a standout life. 
Well, I'm grateful for spending the time with you for having this conversation. Thanks so much, Kurt. Not a problem, anytime. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.